0: Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. In this lecture, Mr Simon Garrett, Head of Learning at Bristol Zoo, asks the controversial question of how much wildlife we actually need or even like in this thought-provoking insight into the future. Don't be scared by the number of slides I've got. (laughs) Those of you can see me laying them out, I'll tell you in advance there's 101 PowerPoint slides, which I know is a stupid thing to do in 45 minutes. But don't worry, the pace is quite quick, so hold on tight. Okay, We're going to be doing some biology here, we're also going to be looking at psychology, we're going to be looking at philosophy, all sorts of things. A lot of things I'm going to skate over. I've borrowed slides from the Foundation Degree in Integrated Wildlife Conservation. I've borrowed slides from previous lectures. I've borrowed slides from all over the place. So this is actually um, probably 12, 15 hours worth of lecture (laughs) condensed down into 45 minutes. So some of the things I'm necessarily going to have to skate over. But I hope what it will do is open up some thoughts and some questions and some ideas. So I will try my hardest Uh, to leave time at the end for questions as well. Um, And also, I've put my whole evening aside. I don't know what you're doing after this. If you want to stick around and go somewhere else and carry on the discussion that this fires up, I'm, I'm happy for that as well. So. As John said, I, I work for Bristol Zoo, I've been working for Bristol Zoo for 23 years now, and our current strapline for the society that owns and runs the zoo is creating a sustainable future for wildlife and people. So when I was coming up with the title for this, I thought, well, wouldn't it be fun to actually look at whether this is actually even possible? Um, it's fun, what I do at Bristol Zoo, but are we, is it actually possible to get this sustainable future for wildlife and people? So... Let's just take this phrase to start off with. What do we mean by sustainable anyway? Now, the Brundtland Commission came up with this definition. Uh, and this is obviously a very human one. So this is the, the, the sustainable development for for people bit. We'll come to wildlife in a moment. So we're talking about development that meets the needs of the present without compromising the ability of future generations to meet their own needs. So basically not trashing the place now, leaving potential for the future. And... A lot of time now when this word sustainable is used, we're not only talking about environmental sustainability, but also social and economic sustainability as well. And they all overlap in many, many ways, as we'll see as we go through this, this um, roller coaster ride for the next 40 minutes. But sustainability is all about not trashing the future. So what's the future? Are we actually looking at saving wildlife for the next 10 years? the next 20 years, for the next 100 years. Bristol Zoo's been in existence for 175 years already. I'd like to think that it'll be going perhaps in some form or another for the next 175 years, playing some sort of role in society. Um, but let's take a much, much wider view. <laughs> actually, if we're talking about sustainable future, I think actually we need to think really, really long term. Sustainability is all about not thinking just a thousand Years ahead, 2000 years ahead, but actually maintaining as much diversity as we can forever. Well, not quite forever, because in perhaps five and a half billion years, the Earth is going to burn up anyway. So to a certain extent, what we do now, however we trash the planet, doesn't really matter anyway, because go enough billion years in the future and it really won't matter anyway. It's also, looking back in time, important to think that actually, you know, we are, our perspective is all on here, looking at what we're doing now, but you could have one of those three o'clock in the morning uh, conversations when you've had too much to drink, where you're kind of going, actually, well, what's the point? It, you know, the Earth is very long, uh, it's been in existence a long time, and it's very different now to what it was in the past. Things change, you know, humans will trash it, the world will still be here in however many, you know, decades, centuries, millennia, billions of years' time. It, it'll just be different. So anyway... We are actually going to spend most of our time here looking at just the present. But to put it in context, you could say it doesn't really matter what we do or if we trash the planet because it's going to trash itself anyway. And and like I said, just reiterating this, the planet's been around a long time and it hasn't been stable. So when we're looking about conservation, this is an important thing as well. A few decades ago, people thought of conservation very much as preservation, keeping things as they are now. But as they are now is just a point in time. That's not how the planet's been. Things change a lot. So actually, it's this thing about not trashing it now so that the future possibilities can still happen. But things will change. Things will change. It's not about just preserving things as they are at this moment in time. So this context is very, very broad, in time and in space as well. Here's a view of the Earth from the moon. Here's a view of the Earth from a little bit further away. Is there life out further? Actually, Sustainable future for wildlife and people. Maybe if we disappear and things disappear on this planet here, maybe there's life going on somewhere else in the universe which will just carry life on. Again, we're not going to talk about this now, but it's just putting it in context. We're going to focus very much on now and the next few hundred years. Perhaps the next few decades. So, sustainable future for wildlife... What is wildlife, anyway? This is probably what you think about wildlife. This is what will come to mind. Western lowland gorillas, South African penguins, Livingston's fruit bats that John mentioned I've been working with in the wild, and we also have a Bristol Zoo now, Asiatic lions, perhaps some local wildlife as well with barn owls. Big, charismatic stuff is what comes to mind when you're talking about wildlife. But there's little things, too. Okay, These are quite charismatic as well. This is the, uh, the water vole. Suffered catastrophic declines in this country in recent years. Uh, we've got little frogs from Madagascar, the large marsh grasshopper from Somerset levels, the crayfish. Come back to one of these the uh, partula tree snails. This is all wildlife as well. It doesn't come straight to mind, but what we're talking about here is wildlife in all its variety. And not just the animals, of course, but wildlife includes the habitats that they really live in. So here we've got some habitat in Brazil, in the eastern forest of Brazil, where things like the golden lion tamarind live, which is already getting a bit trashed. You can see an aerial view of what's left of some of the Atlantic forest in Brazil. Um, I'm lucky enough to be leading a tour um, to Borneo next, about this time next year, actually. And uh, I got on Google Earth and have a look at the places we're going to visit and take this tour group. But you've only really got to zoom out just a little bit to realise that actually where we're going to visit, where the wildlife is, is tiny little patches. And what used to be continuous forest isn't anymore. It's little tiny patches preserved here and there. But it's all wildlife. It's not just gorillas and tigers and wonderful things like golden lion tamarins, but the whole of biodiversity. Bits of biodiversity that we like, which evolutionarily, taking that big view again for the moment are probably on their way out anyway. This is a rubbish animal. If you look at the anatomy of pandas, they are carnivores. Short guts, the way their pans work, with their claws, the way their jaws work. They're carnivores. What on earth have they done, given up and just surviving on bamboo? They have to eat all their waking moments, otherwise they drop dead. This is a rubbish animal. Even if humans weren't mucking up the habitat, even if you left them completely alone, they'd probably go extinct in you know, maybe 15, 20,000 years anyway. So again, zooming out for a moment, taking that broad view, these are on their way out. But as humans, we love them. We love pandas because, well, they're cute and they're, well, not that cuddly, but, um, and with those black eye patches and, you know, absolutely lovely. And we, whoa, hang on a second. And we love things like tigers as well. Especially when we live on this safe little island off the coast of Europe where we don't have to worry about tigers on the way home from work or from school. Tigers are lovely. <laughs> Even white tigers. Uh, don't get me started on white tigers. But if you happen to live in the cinder barns, and this is creeping up behind you, then tigers aren't so lovely. So actually when we think about biodiversity and biodiversity conservation... You've got to also put it in context and realise we're making some value judgments a lot of the time as well. We like tigers, we don't have to worry about being eaten by them. In this country we've got rid of all of our big dangerous wildlife. But we expect other people around the world to live with it. You've got to preserve tigers, you've got to preserve lions, you've got to preserve big dangerous crocodiles with sharp pointy teeth that just want to eat people. And this, you know what this is? This is just as much part of biodiversity as this and that. This is the smallpox virus. There's bits of biodiversity that we actually don't like and we're actively trying to get rid of. Pretty much done it with, with smallpox, although we can't quite bring ourselves to drive it to extinction. Lots of other things we're driving to extinction without wanting to. This, we can't quite bring ourselves to demolish the last stocks. So when you again think, you know, what a wildlife, what are we talking about here? Actually, biodiversity in all its variety, and to recognise that we're always making judgments about it. Things that we spend a lot of time and money and effort on, and things that we also spend time and money and effort on getting rid of, and everything in between. So biodiversity is massive. And so I'm going to use the word biodiversity for the moment, rather than wildlife. And most of it isn't the stuff that you think of with wildlife. There's your vertebrates in terms of your numbers of species on the planet. Vertebrates essentially statistically don't exist. But that's what we think about when we're looking at a sustainable future for wildlife. People always think about the pig charismatic vertebrates. It's essentially not there. What we're really thinking about is everything, including archaea and bacteria and protists. the whole of everything. So, sustainable future for wildlife and people. Wildlife is actually a tiny, tiny branch on the evolutionary tree. We'll come back to the evolutionary tree a little bit as we go through here as well. So, I haven't even finished unpacking the first phrase yet. (laughs) Sustainable future for wildlife and people. Bit of a definition of sustainability. Thinking about the future, and in its big expanse, wildlife, well, we're talking about everything, all biodiversity, and people. Now, when I was born, which was about here, there were something like 3 billion people on the planet. I don't feel like I've grown up, so I still feel like, I don't, okay, not like when I was born, but I don't feel much like, more, than, more than a teenager. Um, but suddenly the world's changed around me. There's now more than double the number of people on the planet there were when I was born. So we've got a lot of people to think about a sustainable future for as well, an awful lot of people, and growing rapidly. Now what happens to the population in the future is up for all sorts of assumptions. It may peak and drop off. Not getting much beyond 9 billion, it may keep on going. Who knows? So, sustainable future for wildlife people. There's our initial phrase. When we're thinking wildlife, quite often, if you come and see them at the zoo, or if they're your pets or whatever, or animals that are visiting your garden, you think about wildlife as individuals. Now, of course, for individuals there is no future. All individual bits of wildlife will die. The thing that carries on, if you like, the unit that carries on is the species Individuals come and go, they get born and they die, the species carry on. So perhaps, and often we're thinking actually about sustainable future for therefore species, not the individuals. Some obviously have no future. Things like the thylacine, um, that was one of the last known individuals, died in Hobart Zoo in 1936. The thylacine is gone. Some people say they've cited it on mainland Australia in recent years. I'd love it to be true, but I'm not sure that it is. So for some species, there is no future. And in fact... For the majority of wildlife, their future is already gone. If you look at the paleontology now, if you look at the number of species that have existed on the planet, 99.999% of them are already extinct. So that great expanse of time again, again, we're looking at a snapshot. What we've got is actually the minority of wildlife that's ever existed, and most of it is already extinct. Extinction is a natural process. Okay, this wasn't natural. Humans drove them to extinction. So let's look at extinction for the moment. Now, the next little bit, I'm going to thank Andy Purvis for this. He actually did an RGS lecture called the Sixth Mass Extinction a little while ago. Just put your hands up if you came to that. It was probably about four or five years ago. Nobody else? Okay. If you did, you'll recognize the next few slides. If you didn't, this will be new, but I basically nicked these from Andy Purvis and he won't mind as it's looking at extinction in the modern context but in relation to the big sweeps of time as well. And is, are we, people keep talking about us being now in the midst of a sixth mass extinction. Is that true? Certainly we're losing things. These are known extinctions, vertebrates now, just for the moment, even though that's a tiny part of the evolutionary tree. Known vertebrate extinctions since 1600. Numbers are something like this. Now I haven't got a total at the bottom there, but there are known extinctions, but actually not that many. And it is a natural process. So over geological time, there have been some big mass extinctions. This is a a prettier picture of that. And this is actually family extinctions, not species. This is showing um, families uh, of, of species disappearing. Now, as we'll come to in a moment, in order to lose a family, you've got to lose a lot of species. You've got to trim that evolutionary tree a lot. But there have been some major ones, the five mass extinctions, the end, per- per- Permian, uh, end Permian and then Triassic with kind of two biggies. Um, and these were sort of catastrophic events, perhaps volcanism, perhaps uh, impact from asteroids, all sorts of things competing. Um, but certainly nothing to do with humans. It's a natural process. There's a background level of extinction, and there are some major extinctions that go on. Now, if you are to lose, let's say, okay, you've got a family, uh, I'm I'm talking taxonomy now, if you've got a family, uh, a group of species, obviously for that family to go extinct, all the members of the species, all the members of that family have to go extinct, in the same way that to get rid of a species, all the individuals have to go to get rid of a genus, all the species within that genus have to go. To get rid of a family, all of the, all of the uh, the genera within that family have to go. And in fact, you've got to kill off about ninety one percent of species within a uh, species of. This is for mammals, actually, um, in order to kill off half the families. So, when with those big uh, big extinctions, um, you lost maybe up to sixty percent of families that was well over 90% of of species that were actually being wiped out. So there were massive extinctions on the species scale. So when you're losing families, you are losing loads and loads and loads of species. So here we go. For present-day mammals, you actually need to wipe out over 90% of species to wipe out half the families when you get big damage to that evolutionary tree. Now, how do we know what sort of level of species extinction we've got anyway. We hear about all sorts of estimates of the background level of species extinction and the modern rates of <coughs> extinction. Most of the estimates, and they are absolutely estimates, are derived from thinking about the species area curve. And it's basically to do with this. If you've got a habitat, this is a ooh, this is a, um, an, a satellite image of Rondonia in Brazil, um, and the, the uh, red here, so this is artificial coloured, Um, the red is is, is intact forest and you can see these roads going through and gradually the forest disappearing I mean this is well out of date now this was taken in 1988 most of this is now gone completely Um, but there's a, a standard model which basically says you've got a certain area. Um, this is this a lot to do with island biogeography as well. A certain area of island will have a certain number of species. The smaller the island, the smaller the number of species. The larger the area, the larger number of species. So you basically make an assumption. You say if you start with this amount of forest, and if you cut that forest down its area by half, you can basically follow back down the curve, and that should give you an answer as to, therefore, how many species are left within it. In fact, there are some slight flaws in doing this which we haven't got time to go into now but again it gives you a sort of background estimate um, but it's not to do with going out and, and actually looking for species and finding that they're not there and then noting them down as extinct most of the extinction rates that are, um, are banded around nowadays are actually based on a uh, an extrapolation backwards of this species area curve but at the same time we're also discovering new species the whole time and at an amazing rate. Something like, worldwide, 300 species a day are being added to our knowledge about wildlife. Partly splitting what we already know, and even things like lemurs. When I started teaching at the zoo, there were something like 35 species of lemurs known. It's now over 100. That's not because new species of lemurs have evolved. That's because people have looked at the genetics of them and some slight differences have gone, actually, do you know what, what we thought was the same species? Actually, is two separate species. So, we're discovering and describing new species the whole time, right the way across the taxonomic groups. And we're not running out of that. The rate of new discoveries, the rate of new descriptions, doesn't seem to be levelling out at the moment. Even at the phylum level, okay? Now, I don't know how much you know about taxonomy, and again, we don't have time to go into it now, but at the phylum level, the big unit within kingdoms, (laughs) we're actually finding new ones of those, Cycleophora, this one here, this is a bunch of organisms that were found, and I think they're still only known from the mouth parts of lobsters. These are a, a new phylum, a new completely different group of animals, only known, tiny little animals living on the lips of lobsters. Anyway, so we're discovering and describing new species the whole time. So we've got this kind of imagine this, so we've got this phylogenetic tree, okay? Let's use this as a measure of biodiversity. Let's see whether the extinction rates are sustainable. So is this phylogenetic tree of life on Earth growing faster than it's being trimmed by extinction? So with our phylogenetic diversity, we're looking at evolutionary trees like this and relatedness. So we're very closely related to chimps and bonobos and quite closely to gorillas, more distantly to orangutans. And it's basically about how far you you follow back to a common ancestor. I love this diagram. (laughs) This is one of those for all mammals. Okay, Just mammals, though. This is a detailed phylogenetic tree just for something like 5,000 species of mammals. If you zoom in on it, okay, right, here we are. This is humans here (laughs) within the primates. This is a PDF, and you can zoom right in on it. (laughs) So there we go. Homo sapiens, there we are, right next to our uh, two species of chimps. So here's our phylogenetic tree. How fast is it being trimmed, and how fast is it growing? Okay. So here's some assumptions. This tree of phylogeny is growing at one year per year, by definition. If the tree is growing at... A mil- uh, 10 million points. Let's say there's 10 million species on the planet, which is a, a moderately good estimate for what we're at, at the moment. The, the current estimates of the number of species on the planet um, are around 8.8 million. So let's take 10 million. So therefore, we've got 10 million tips on this phylogenetic tree growing at one year per year. Therefore, you've got a, a credit, if you like, of 10 million years worth of stuff per year to play with. New diversity. Now, a species survival average over geological time is going to be one, two, five, maybe 10, so let's take 5 million years. So on that basis, you can afford two extinctions per year, just doing these calculations, to kind of be replaced by the tree growing, the evolution carrying on of phylogeny, kind of increasing the, these growing tips anyway. Any more than that, any more than two extinctions per year... And your phylogenetic tree is shrinking, therefore is not sustainable. So what is happening? So just for mammals, 20 extinctions known in the 20th century alone. So that's a loss of 100 million years worth of phylogenetic diversity. With 5,000 species of mammals, remember this is just the mammals bit. Let's take 5 million because it's round figures. So it basically takes 20,000 years to regrow the tree for each year of the extinction loss we've got at the moment. So you can see that that's obviously not sustainable. The figures just don't work. And if you take, you know, just not mammals but everything else, basically we're losing the tree faster than it is growing phylogenetically. It's kind of obvious, but when you work through the maths, you can see that it's absolutely true in in massive scale. So the biodiversity, this phylogenetic tree of life on Earth, is shrinking fast. Now, we'll come back to this in a moment as well. It's not just thinking about the individual species, but obviously they're all interrelated in ecosystems. And those ecosystems have kind of higher functions as well, some of which impact on humans and some of which don't. Now, okay, we're going to whiz through this. Most experiments (laughs) suggest that your ecosystem function... Is probably not a straight line. So if we just took this for an example. If you've got great ecosystem function at this number of species, okay, you can lose a whole load of species and your ecosystem is still working. Okay? Lose tigers, probably the ecosystem will carry on. Lose a couple of other species, the ecosystem will carry on. Actually, you've got to lose quite a lot, and the graphs are all different, before your ecosystem function begins to actually be seriously impacted. Now... So many different experiments on this, during different conclusions, but essentially giving similar conclusions. You can lose species here, there, and everywhere. And it won't matter too much. It matters to those individuals that have gone. Well actually it doesn't because they're dead so they don't know about it. it matters to people who liked those species that have gone. That's therefore you kind of go, well, so a bit of extinction is okay. The ecosystems will carry on intact. As long as extinction is fairly random, if you lose a whole guild of, of organisms that are carrying out a certain function, that could be much more serious. So, is extinction random? Or is it, are some species more susceptible to disappearing than others? If you take the red list, the IUCN red lists, then basically you can find that it's not random. Certain taxonomic groups are actually much harder hit if you just take their position in the, uh, in the, tr- in the table of threat, the, the ladder of threat, if you like. So primates, hardest hit, whereas rodents are actually not doing too, too badly. So it's not random. Extinction is not just kind of a chance occurrence for biodiversity across the, across the piece. So... If you imagined that actually extinction would be like a hail of bullets and therefore whoever happened to get a bullet is the one that disappears, that's your random thing. If it's not random, what makes a species bulletproof, if you like, or susceptible to those bullets? There are some senses that actually, if you've got a species with a large geographic range producing loads of offspring and they're a real generalist, something like the red fox, maybe that makes it bulletproof. Actually, you can throw all sorts of things at it, and it will carry on. If you've got something with a small range, and a low reproductive rate, and a specialist... (laughs) They're on their way out. (laughs) Also, it kind of depends on where you are. Canadian lynx, out in the mountains... Actually, there's not much, apart from hunters out there specifically targeting them. They're kind of out of the way. The Japanese Martin has a distribution which is kind of a bit disrupted. So if you overlay species biology um, with human pressure, then you get something which is actually telling you much more about susceptibility to threat. And you can do this. So if you take human population density and you overlay this mapping on species with a sort of vulnerable biology, then you can begin to predict which species are basically right in the firing line and are going to disappear. And that's very important for future conservation planning, if you're worried about which species to plan for next. You may have some species which, at the moment, on the IUCN red list, don't look like they're under threat. But perhaps something about their biology suggests that if you've only got a little bit of human population pressure, they're going to crash really quickly. And so you get on things like, I'll just pick out one here, this is the red panda. I mean, they are listed as a threatened species, but actually, if you look at where they are, and the predicted human expansion, etc., they're going to be in real trouble in not too long. So this is useful for looking ahead, and planning where to put resources in conservation. But then other stuff comes along that you just don't expect. Frogs. That all amphibians um, are, are susceptible to sorry, not all amphibians. Some, many amphibians are susceptible to this mycosis disease, which is spreading around. Its origins are possibly in the Xenopus toad, which it, it infects, but doesn't actually the Xenopus toad doesn't really manage matter mind much about it. Um, it's a pretty nasty death that these amphibians go through, and basically, it's it's you can see the the front on which it's been advancing. This is the most dramatic. This is a fairly old map by now, but it was creeping down from North America. This this um, this uh, fungus. Fungal infection, 1988, 1990, 96, and so on, down through Central America. And if you go into a forest before the fungus gets there, you get loads of amphibians. You go in the forest a year later after the the fungus has come through, it's wiped out loads. The future of lots of amphibians at the moment is actually to do with captive breeding, because we can't save them in the wild. You can save the habitat, but the fungus comes through and wipes them out. And then, of course, there's climate change coming along. (laughs) All sorts of predictions depending on what we do as to how the graph is going to go, how warm the planet's going to get, and how fast. You can actually look at animals' geographic ranges, and again look back at their biology, and make some predictions, a certain degree of warming, how it's going to affect. This is actually for Australian vertebrates. So if, if, if this is your, your current richness, you can predict how the range of your vertebrates is going to contract with various degrees of warming. You can see, to start off with, one degree... Actually, you'd be struggling to find differences between there and there. A little bit more, and suddenly, massive decline in range of where these species are going to be able to survive. So, focusing on extinction for the moment, is this a sixth mass extinction? Are we in the middle of a sixth mass extinction? The rates of species extinction are certainly higher than the background... But think back to that thing about, you know, the ones we've lost with we know we've lost since 1600 actually is a tiny tiny proportion. We are losing whole larger groups, not just species. But it's not like the dinosaurs. Actually, we haven't got there yet. We are losing big chunks, perhaps primates. We are losing some ecosystem function, but it's probably not yet a sixth mass extinction. Not yet. So if you hear people say, we are in the midst of a sixth mass extinction, I'm not sure that's true. Yet. But it's heading in that direction. But anyway, it's not just about extinction. A sustainable future is not just about the number of species you've got left, but how many individuals you've got as well. Because... Your bioabundance, how many you've got of a certain individual, absolutely has a relationship with also this ecosystem service, which is going to come back on people in a moment. So, what do we know about bioabundance? If we're not so sure about extinction rates and those that we're losing, what about the ones that we've still got, but looking at their numbers? WWF and ZSL produce this brilliant thing, the Living Planet Report, which gets updated very frequently. And they produce tables and tables and tables of figures. But this graph kind of sums it up. They are doing an amazing amount of assessment of species. I mean, look at the numbers here. They're currently assessing upwards of 65,000 species and looking at their abundance. We're up to something like 20,000 out of those threatened species. And it's... the the, the threat is not the same across the taxonomic group. So you've got here, I mentioned amphibians and catridae mycosis, so you've got just over 6,000 species of amphibians, and about a third of those are absolutely known to be under threat. About a third are known to be actually not too affected at the moment, and about a third in the middle where we actually don't know enough about them. But some species are very well uh, studied. So you can plot, for example, and, and things go up as well as down. So tuna numbers dropping dramatically, Otter is actually doing quite well. And you can begin to combine these into something which they call a Living Planet Index. How are we doing in terms of abundance of species? Let's look at tigers as an example for a second. Here's a Living Planet Index for tigers. If you start at one an arbitrary value in 1980, how are they doing? Well, they're declining. But there are five subspecies of tigers. There used to be eight. At the beginning of the last century, there were eight subspecies of tigers. We've already lost three. And the South China tiger is pretty much on its way out. I, know, I think there's about 40 individuals left. It's getting quite tricky. Bengal tiger. Here's the more detail for them. The drop from here to here is using a different survey method, because again, thinking about this, what you don't do is go into the forest and count all the tigers. You cannot do it. Lots of tiger researchers in the wild have actually never seen a tiger. You look at tracks, you look at pug marks, you look at you know, camera traps, and looking at the stripe patterns and all sorts of things. So actually you change your survey method, and it can have dramatic differences in what your estimate of the wild tiger numbers actually are. Especially difficult with animals that live in forests. Open plains, you can fly across in an a helicopter and count the elephants on the open plains. You can't do that with animals underneath the you know, forest canopy. Very detailed uh, information on, on the Amur tiger, the, the Siberian tiger. But look at the numbers: tiny, tiny, tiny numbers. And so, if you look at these um, Living Planet indices, when you kind of multiply up. Whether it's marine one, a sort of a, 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 an aggregation of these individual species ones, a marine one, a freshwater one, a terrestrial one, an all-vertebrate one. This is just vertebrates they're working on at the moment. They're all declining. Put it into one <coughs> global living planet index. Wildlife is declining. And this is looking at abundance. But it's not all declining. You've got a tropical index here. The temperate index is actually increasing. Now, this may be an anomaly because of the species that they happen to be monitoring, or because of protected areas, or because it could be all sorts of things. The overall picture, however, is still a decline. Now, again, put this in context. Here's a decline since the 1960s of Atlantic Cod. This is something absolutely related to people now, sustainable future for wildlife and people. It matters to cod well, it doesn't matter to cod actually if they're in low numbers, cod don't care. But humans care if they're in low numbers because people like to eat cod. So we've absolutely got a decline in cod since the 1960s. But look at going further back. An 1852 estimate of cod stocks is right up there. The black line is carrying capacity. That's where the cod stocks could be and perhaps should be. So this decline, look, (laughs) it's right down here. So we worry about this little little declines here. We're already on a massive loss from what it used to be only 150 years ago. So, (laughs) we've got this decline in bioabundance. We've got a decline in species numbers. And at the same time, we've got calculations now of a global ecological footprint of humans. There's all sorts of ways of measuring this as well. And again, this is like a whole lecture series just to go into how you measure ecological footprints. But just for the sake of for the moment, if you go, OK, if we all lived within the means of one planet, okay, all the people that are here, um, all the people on the planet, we could survive um, about here. This is, this is your one planet limit. This is the one planet that we've got. Okay, Actually, at the moment... We're well above it and heading in an upwards direction. And a lot of this is to do with it's not only consumption per capita, but it's also the number of people. Remember that graph at the beginning, okay? Just in my lifetime, which isn't that long, we've gone from 3 billion people to over 7 billion. So we've got a big deficit here. Okay. Lots of graphs. It's the pictures of animals. A couple of quick examples of some species with individual stories. This is the partula Tree Snail. They occur on South Pacific Islands. There used to be 140 species. Um, there's now a lot fewer because they've been eaten to extinction. They've been eaten to extinction by um, Euglandina, the rosy wolf snail from Florida, which was introduced to control giant African land snails, which were introduced for farming, but of course had no natural predators. So the, the giant African land snails escaped. The predator was introduced to get rid of them would not horribly wrong, like most biocontrols do, and you ended up with all these local little tree snails being wiped out, eaten by the introduced rosy wolf snail. But who cares? Geneticists studying the uh, recent radiation, genetic radiation of these, really cared. Speciation was quite interesting. Some of these particular tree snails occur in certain valleys on certain islands and nowhere else in the world. In the big scheme of things... Who cares about little tiny brown tree snails that are about that big? Well, we do at Bristol Zoo, actually. In fact, we hold the entire world population of Partula faber at Bristol Zoo. Yikes. A whole species in our hands. Just in one building in Bristol is the entire world population of a little tiny brown tree snail. So we care. Does anyone else? Crayfish. We're losing our native crayfish by the introduced white clawed uh, crayfish. Sorry, our native white clawed crayfish, we're losing to the introduced signal crayfish from the States. Who cares? We care. We do a lot of work with them. In the big scheme of things, does it matter if there are crayfish in the local streams? Does it matter if they're American crayfish or native crayfish? Don't answer that now. It's a philosophical point. <laughs> We've lost some wildlife, which we're now putting back. Beavers have been reintroduced into Scotland recently. We like them because they don't kill people. So we'll put them back. We'll reintroduce species that we like. What if we tried to reintroduce wolves into Scotland? <coughs> there have been a couple of consultations. Nobody's going for it at the moment. And wolves aren't anywhere near as dangerous as tigers. So when we think about uh, conservation in terms of preservation or reintroductions of species, again, we've got to think really carefully about the interaction between wildlife and people. Which wildlife do people want around? Which will they put up with? What compensations does that have to be for having big, dangerous wildlife with pointy teeth around? Functioning functioning ecosystems give all sorts of things. These are Brazil nuts. Brazil nuts only fruit when they've been pollinated by a euglossine bee, which only reproduces when the bee male goes and gets a particular scent from a certain orchid that lives in a particular tree (laughs) tree in the Brazilian rainforest, blah, blah, blah. It's all part of a system. You can't grow, there are a couple of exceptions, generally you can't grow Brazil nuts for production outside a functioning ecosystem. needs the rest of the ecosystem to work. That's partly why Brazil nuts are so expensive. They're all harvested from wild Brazil nut trees. And we need wild crops with genetic diversity um, to support our our crops as well. Things like cocoa and bananas under huge threat from fungus uh, diseases. And we need the wild resources, which is particularly difficult actually with bananas because they're triploid. uh, I won't go into the genetics of bananas. But we need wild resources to keep Our crop plants, which absolutely affect people, sustainable future, sustainable food, we need the wild resources to stay one step ahead of the diseases which affect our monocultures. Sometimes wildlife is particularly useful to us as well. This is the rosy periwinkle um, from which a chemical has been derived, which is great um, at putting uh, kids with childhood leukemia into remission. Um, I can't remember the figures, but I I think before the the use of this chemical there was about 90% death rate from childhood leukaemia. It's completely the other way around now, 90% survival rate, or even higher now actually, because of the chemical derived from the rosy periwinkle. But they're not dangerous either. These are Nile crocodiles. Nile crocodiles are horrible because they eat people. And if you go down to the river to do your washing and you get attacked by a crocodile, you don't want the crocodile there. But in areas where the Nile crocodile has been reduced in numbers, there are fewer crocodiles to eat the large fish, which eat the smaller fish, which eat the mosquito larvae. So you get an increase in malaria. Malaria is extremely dangerous, far more dangerous than crocodiles. So actually, functioning ecosystems, sustainable ecosystems, are really important to people for all sorts of reasons. Complicated diagram, but it basically just says... If we want to be supported by our functioning ecosystems, and we need to be, humans are not separate from nature, we're absolutely part of it and supported by it, we need biodiversity and bioabundance. Otherwise we're stuffed. So, in the last five minutes, if things are going down the pan, we're losing species, we're losing ecosystem function, we're losing individuals, What can we do about it to give ourselves a sustainable future? We've been trying for a long time to do something about it. 1889, the RSPB set up because they were worried about uh, the decline in birds because of uh, the Victorians basically using them for plumes on their hats. The National Trust was set up, 1895. This is talked about a lot nowadays. um, Nature deficit disorder children should be out and about, people need the fresh air. It's not a new idea. Octavia Hill, who was one of the three founders of the National Trust, was talking about it more than 100 years ago. Wildlife Conservation Society in the States, responsible in its early days for bringing bison back to the the plains of America, all sorts, 1895. We've been at this for a long time. People have had an interest, a realisation that things are not going in the good direction, well more than 100 years the origins of FFI is all about realising that the things that people like to hunt in East Africa are disappearing, so they'd better start thinking of ways of preserving them to give them sustainable hunting in the future, otherwise the wildlife all goes. Um, German foresters in the mid-1800s were actually managing forests for sustainable production. John Muir was getting the people in the States to put aside huge areas of wilderness Gifford Pinchot was talking to T. Root, uh, Theodore Roosevelt. The, the ideas about sustaining natural systems have been around for a really, really long time. The UN, leading to... OK, let's see if you know this. Founded in 1948, so something's uh, coming out from, from, the, uh, uh, from, from the UN, the largest professional global conservation network more than 1,000 member organisations in 140 countries, 11,000 voluntary scientists, grouped in six commissions, neutral forum for governments, blah, 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 even has official observer status at the UN General Assembly. Massive power. So people are really trying to do something about conservation and sustainable future. Who is this? What is this organisation? It's the IUCN. So... I'm going to skip over these, but it's, it's just key figures have been doing this for a long time. This is a lovely document dating from the 60s. This is the origin of Wildlife Fund, for, uh, the World Wildlife Fund for Nature, World Wildlife Fund as it was. Basically set up as a fundraising organisation to fund conservation work around the world, doing big national appeals, raising enormous amounts of money from the start to fund conservation around the world. Then we've got all sorts of anti-establishment organisations coming in, focusing on conservation of particular things. So you've got Silent Spring uh, by Rachel Carson in 1962, talking about the decline of birds because of uh, DDT. We've got Greenpeace starting up in the 70s. um, Anti-whaling campaigns, actually they started anti-nuclear, but they quickly moved on to anti-whaling campaigns. We've got the Wildlife Trust in the 60s. Friends of the Earth in 1971. Marine Conservation Society. Conservation International. I love this bit. I'll read this out to you. (laughs) Conservation International Conservation once focused on preserving natural areas as untouched relics of the past All that changed in a Washington hotel room on a cold February 19, 1987 When a small group of pioneers single-handedly redefined conservation Instead of keeping places intact as relics of the past It envisioned a conservation as a working model of the future A future in which people lived in harmony with nature It's not a new idea this is a bunch of people who actually were part of WWF and they were a bit peed off with WWF and didn't like the others. So in their hotel room, actually, it was a bitching session and they set up Conservation International. I don't really care what the origins are, or of all of these others. <laughs> people are focused on conservation all the time. All of these exist. Be nice to Nettles Week, I promise you. It exists there are people focused on conservation of pretty much everything. And it's big now. Okay? With climate change, it's gone massive. It's absolutely gone mainstream. So we've got the Stern Review. We've got a major film, An Inconvenient Truth, with Al Gore. We're starting to get the same for biodiversity as well. We've got this rubbishly named The Economics of Ecosystems and Biodiversity, a report written and released fairly recently, trying to put biodiversity on an economic footing, giving us you know, uh, an economic argument for doing something about it in the same way that the Stern report did for climate change. It's getting there, so biodiversity is beginning to come up now in business news, not just nature and conservation news. I'm absolutely not going to read these to you, but... This, again, is how top of mind it is. This is um, Convention on Biological Diversity, the recent-ish meeting in Japan, in Nagoya. They came out with the most amazing targets, agreed by 193 countries across the world. People are aware of biodiversity and do something about it. Integrated into national, local and development poverty poverty reduction strategies. Crikey, I'm not going to read these out, but it's basically saying we've got to stop the loss of biodiversity. We've got to value it. We're going to put into place all sorts of things which mean that it's going to become sustainable. All these targets: invasive alien species are identified, prioritised, controlled, and eradicated. But look at the, type, the, the targets. By 2015, that's only three years' time. Most of these targets have a 2020. It's only eight years' time. Fine words. By 2020, the extinction of known threatened species has been prevented and their conservation status, particularly of those most in decline, has been improved and sustained. Fine words at high level. It's the same all the way across. But it's not happening. We are still losing biodiversity. So it's being talked about at the highest levels how important it is. But my last bit promise you, only five minutes more, is a, perhaps an indication of how. We've been trying this for more than 100 years. All of those organisations, all of those people, trying to realise, focus on what's going on. But everyone, not just those who love dragonflies or badgers or nettles, need to be involved. They need to be connected to the natural world. But that's long term. What we need is action. But actually, it's not top of mind. Anything to do with the environment is way outweighed with other things that impact on people's lives. Actually, on a day-to-day basis, who is really concentrating on saving biodiversity? Whether it's... I don't know what's happened there. (laughs) Whether it's good for people or not. So the last little bit is a bit of psychology then. How can we turn this corner? How can we get people, ordinary, normal people in their everyday lives, to realise this stuff and do something about it? Who in the audience can complete this, this quote? This is a Senegalese conservationist, Baba Dioum. In the end we will only conserve what we love. We will love only what we understand. We will understand only what we are taught. Brilliant For a new education officer working in Bristol Zoo. Great, so I teach people things, then they'll understand. When they understand, they'll love it, and when they love it, they'll conserve it. Job done. Teach people stuff, they'll conserve it. Lovely jubbly. This is Babadioum, he was the environment minister in Senegal. Almost certainly what he said is entirely wrong. It is entirely upside down, because people are not rational. We don't go, oh, I realise now that the world's going to hell in a handcart and that we're losing species, I think I'll do something about it. We simply don't. Day-to-day behaviour is nothing to do with rational thoughts. We're much more like Homer. We just do what we do. We can tell people visiting Bristol Zoo to look for the MSC logo. We've become sustainable at the zoo. We are certified to feed MSC sustainable seafood to our customers in our restaurant and to our seals. We feed sustainable fish to our seals. But do people come in to visit to the zoo and see that and go, oh, from now on I must always look for MSC certified fish? Maybe a few do. We've got some research to show it's made a little effect, but it's only tiny. Actually, we've got to do something much more radical. So, it's about branding biodiversity. Making it big campaigny getting at what people's motivations are to drive change, and working with some big players, multinationals, which are quite often by the environmental movement, glared at as the real enemy. But look, two billion times a day, somebody, somewhere, uses a Unilever brand. If Unilever change what they do, the effect is enormous. Working with these guys... Is really important. And working with ordinary people. So the last bit is about zoos. I was really impressed a couple of years ago with what I heard was going on in Australian zoos. And this is a quick summary of it. Very quick. I promise. Um, They wanted to actually say, what can we do to get our zoo visitors? So this is coming right back full circle now to zoos. My job in the zoo in Bristol. What can we do to get our visitors to do things differently then that helps to create the sustainable future of wildlife people? What hasn't worked is just saying, hey everybody, love pandas, love tigers, go out and be a better person. It absolutely doesn't work. But give them tools... Do a campaign, a carefully focused campaign, and maybe it does. Mobile phone recycling. Mobile phones contain coltan, lots of which is mined in Australia, but also lots of which is mined in eastern Congo, where the forest is cleared for the mining, which also affects eastern lowland gorillas. So actually, get people to recycle their mobile phones. It's becoming more common now, but a couple of years ago, nobody even thought about that. And still, today, most people don't realise. So, just by a targeted campaign, in a few zoos in Australia, they've already diverted 72,000 phones from landfill. And through that, raise money for conservation, which they're spending on eco-guards in eastern Congo, working with gorillas. It's massive. And they've done it within a couple of years, by careful, targeted campaigning. Not based on love wildlife, do something about it, but, here's my final bit, toilet paper. 95% of Australians buy non-recycled toilet paper. This is ridiculous. Nearly 7 million trees are flushed down the toilet every year. (laughs) (laughs) So they did a campaign, Wipe for Wildlife. If you go, okay, and this is to change, at least 10,000 households, this is a start, towards using recycled toilet paper. If you say, actually, wildlife's really important, therefore next time you're buying toilet paper, please buy recycled toilet paper, it doesn't work. Because when you're out doing your shopping, you don't think about wildlife. You think about your person, you think about what you need to do tomorrow, and you know, it's just not there. And anyway, okay, let's just go there. Th- I'll disappear the <coughs> psychology Theory. Of, if you want to know more about theory of planned behaviour, that's another day. Let's um, put it into practice. It's to do with beliefs. And look, do a bit of research with your audience coming into the zoo, and actually the beliefs that are different between people who do and don't buy recycled toilet paper is nothing to do with liking wildlife. Everybody thinks that buying recycled toilet paper is good for wildlife, whether they actually buy it or not. That's not the difference. The difference is these Toilet paper feels uncomfortable, it tears easily, and it's more expensive. That is what's driving people's behaviour. Nothing to do with wildlife. So therefore, their campaign addressed those. I haven't got time to go into it now, but all sorts of silly games to get people to feel it. Realise that actually, recycled toilet paper isn't rough on your bum. And it's not so expensive. In fact, in a lot of cases it's cheaper, and it's stronger than you think. You address what people's concerns really are. And they did all sorts of campaigns around this. So it's not traditional stuff. They had a costume character, Crap Man. <laughs> So that when people were coming out of the toilets in the zoo, he would say, thank you for using recycled toilet paper. <laughs> it works. This is Crap Man. The trustees, Rachel was, was the person who's organising this in the zoo, the trustee said, Whoa, well, hang on a minute, you've done stuff on you know, recycling mobile phones and palm oil and things. Now you're doing stuff about and you've got Crapman? I want you to keep a complaints log. She did. The only complaint she got was people complaining that Crapman wasn't there on the day they visited. <laughs> <laughs> and look, 27,000 households engaged. 45% of them got the message, 27%... Compl- so it's not everybody still, but it's way more than before. This is clever They're working with Monash University, looking at the psychology of what's driving people's behaviours and working with that. It's marketing, social marketing stuff. So, humans are probably the first species to have the power to alter the planet intentionally. We're also doing it unintentionally and other things are doing it unintentionally. We decide the future. I love this. Australian again. This was uh, on the front of a a document produced by the Australian Commission for the Future in 2000. It doesn't exist anymore, but this is a wonderful comment. The future is a place that is created. Created first in the mind and will, created next in activity. The future is not some place we are going to, but one we are creating. We being people. The paths are not to be found, but made. And the activity of making them changes both the maker and the destination. This is taking hold of the future and doing something about it. This is creating the future that we want. The future for wildlife and people is sustainable if we make it so, but the only way we're going to make it so is thinking about how people work. Using clever marketing and campaigning techniques, I think, is our best option, and gradually getting there. So, is a future for wildlife and people sustainable and possible? Is a sustainable future possible? My answer is probably maybe. I don't know. But I think we've now got more and more tools to really give it a go. We've got the knowledge, we've got some marketing techniques, we've begun a little process, we're beginning to understand what, be- what drives people. The planet will still be here in some form or other in the future. But it's up to us, us as humanity, to decide on behalf of ourselves and wildlife what it's like. Maybe it'll be sustainable in the true sense, maybe it won't. But we've got a chance to decide it. Now I'll stop.